From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. engaged in torture after 9-11, like waterboarding. We've all had our experience where you can't breathe. You feel so desperate, and the fact that we consciously made people feel that way over and over again, and in one case over 150 times, it's outrageous. We'll speak with former Colorado Senator Mark Udall, who tried to get to the bottom of this. It's the subject of the new movie, The Report. Then, the fight to keep minor league baseball from striking out. The vibes in Colorado Springs, just one of the teams facing an uncertain future. And a Denver woman's crusade to bring clean water to communities around the world. It's much more than installing a pump. So I love the idea that we're creating a whole new generation of water professionals around the world, which is super inspiring to me. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At times, the speech was angry, and at 35 minutes, it was unusually long. Five years ago today, then-U.S. Senator Mark Udall of Colorado spoke on the Senate floor. His target? The Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA has lied to its overseers in the public, destroyed and tried to hold back evidence, spied on the Senate, made false charges against our staff, and lied about torture and the results of torture. And no one has been held to account. At issue, a report about controversial torture methods the CIA had used on suspected terrorists after 9-11, like waterboarding and mock burials. In one case, a prisoner died. The CIA's practices are the subject of a new movie called The Report. It follows a staffer at the Senate Intelligence Committee trying to uncover what the CIA did under former President George W. Bush, and later the committee's fight with his successor, President Barack Obama, to make the information public. Mark Udall was on the Intelligence Committee during the investigation. He lost his re-election bid and left the Senate a few weeks after this report came out. He now lives in El Dorado Springs outside Boulder. A note that our interview contains descriptions of torture. Senator, thank you for being with us. Ryan, great to hear your voice. Great to be on with you. The United States and other countries have always interrogated prisoners of war. Uh, But what was different about the practices that the CIA used after 9-11? What was different about what we did post-9-11 under the Bush administration's direction was that we crossed the line. We uh, used techniques described at the time as enhanced interrogation techniques. It's a euphemism for torture. Uh, it's the uh, considered opinion of many that uh, we were acting unconstitutionally, illegally, immorally, and we were putting our military personnel at risk because of the Geneva Convention's prohibitions on torture. And we were providing a recruiting tool for our enemies. And then finally, uh, it's been proven over and over again that torture doesn't work. The person who's being tortured will clam up will give you bad information. And so this behavior was both a violation, as you see it, of domestic law, the, the law of the U.S., but also of international law. It was a violation of our laws. It was a violation of international law. It was a violation of everything we'd learned through a series of hard lessons uh, over the decades. Our biggest, baddest weapon is the Bill of Rights. It's our principles, and it's our hewing to those principles, and it's the example that we set The traditional process, as I understand it, is for people questioning POWs to try to win their trust, to persuade them, essentially, to provide the information. This time, as the movie depicts, 
the CIA reversed course. What was behind their change in approach, their, their theory about what would work? It's my belief and the belief of many others that the CIA was both embarrassed by their lack of alerting the country to what we now know as 9-11, and secondly, the pride within their institution that they weren't going to be outdone by the military and the FBI, both of whom had generated intelligence that was uh, important to the war on terror, as we labeled it. To be fair, in the end, the CIA used these techniques because the Bush administration told them to go get the information by any means possible. When people in the CIA who knew the law, who knew the Constitution, uh, raised that question, the White House then used their legal team to expand the definition of appropriate interrogation techniques, things like waterboarding, hanging people by their arms for hours and hours, loud music being played for 24 hours or longer, dousing people in water, nakedly chained to the floor of a cell. All of these have been uh, determined to meet the definition of torture. Uh, But the CIA saluted the administration and uh, began to use these techniques. They also had the services of former Air Force officers who styled themselves as experts in interrogations, and they came up with a whole scheme to torture detainees and in the process undercut our our very standing in the world and made it more difficult to prevail in the war on terror. What technique still haunts you today? Like, I wonder what you still think of. Waterboarding, the mock burials, and in the movie, there's a scene where a detainee's chained to the floor naked and cold waters poured on him uh, over and over again. And he dies ultimately of hypothermia. All of those uses of torture torment and haunt me. I think, for instance, of the what they called rectal rehydration. Yeah, yeah it, you can hear, uh, hear, the, hear the emotion, I, I think, in, in my response here. I, it just... What we did isn't us, and and that's why I was so motivated to bring it to public attention because America, at our best, we acknowledge our mistakes. I would tell you, too, the waterboarding, uh, I'm at a loss for describing it, but we've all had our experience as individuals where you lose, you you can't breathe. You feel so desperate and you feel so out of control, and the fact that we consciously made people feel that way over and over again. And in one case, as you know, over 150 times. It's out, It's outrageous. 150 times for one person? For one person, yeah. Of course, there's a line in the movie that if it weren't so tragic, uh, would almost be funny, where Senator Feinstein asked, we waterboarded this individual over 150 times and we never got any information because the case was being made to her that waterboarding would work and work very quickly. There was also fake burials or or making people think they were about to be buried alive. It's appalling and and it's stunning when you read the report in its entirety and understand what we did. Yeah, we we put people in in boxes that are smaller than your body is. Uh, There were so many steps that were taken. We should say that there just had never been an attack of the magnitude of 9-11 before in the United States. I mean, this is bigger than Pearl Harbor which launched us into World War II. I mean, uh, those who backed these torture methods certainly argued that the circumstances required it and that if prisoners provided actionable information, it could save 
thousands of lives. But, you know, they did find experts, maybe I should put that in quotations, that said this was fine and this would work. Yeah, the CIA did find experts, and I would put that in quotation marks. And at the same time, we were, this is what's remarkable, we were already developing actionable intelligence through the military interrogation processes and and through the FBI that didn't involve the use of torture. Why don't we listen to a scene from the movie in which an FBI agent questions one of the psychologists you mentioned about his credentials. Can can I ask you something? Have you ever interrogated any sort of extremist before? Know much about Al-Qaeda? No. Have you ever interrogated any sort of terrorist before? No. Any sort of criminal? No. Have you ever interrogated anyone before? It's not important. He's a human. I'm a psychologist. He knows a secret, and I'm going to get him to tell that secret. How does it even happen that an agency of the U.S. government hires people with such an obvious lack of experience or training to do a job like this? To this day, I'm I'm not sure, Ryan. I, I don't know how the CIA got itself in a position that these two former Air Force officers became the experts. And then, in, in, by extension, we were willing to we being the CIA and the federal government, all of us as taxpayers and citizens, pay these gentlemen tens of millions of dollars to implement a program, uh, again, that was illegal and, and wasn't effective. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And in light of the new movie called The Report, we're speaking with former U.S. Senator from Colorado, Mark Udall. He was involved in that chapter of history that The Report is centered around, which is bringing to light the torture, what was dubbed enhanced interrogation techniques that the U.S. engaged in after the attacks of 9-11. What prompted the Senate Intelligence Committee to investigate? The Senate Intelligence Committee was prompted to undertake the investigation because the New York Times published a story that outlined the torture program that had been occurring uh, for a number of years under the Bush administration. The Senate has an important role to play in overseeing all of the actions and activities of the executive branch, especially in the, in the realm of intelligence gathering, given the abuses historically that have occurred in the, uh, on the part of the intelligence community. The torture itself uh, indeed happened under President George W. Bush's watch. President Obama issued an executive order to shut it down shortly after he took office. But the Obama administration fought hard for years to keep much of this report secret. Uh, One of their arguments was there was no further reason to dredge this up and that the information gleaned from these torture methods ultimately led to the capture of Osama bin Laden. This actually leads to a phone call, a confrontation, really, between the Intelligence Committee chairwoman, Senator Dianne Feinstein, and uh, President Obama. Let's hear a little bit of that from the movie. It's very clear to us the EITs did not lead to bin Laden. The CIA is misrepresenting the operation. I'm sure you see that, don't you? I'm not sure I understand, Senator. The mission was a success. That's the headline here. This is a crucial moment in our nation's history. I want to make certain that the agency isn't manipulating it to sanitize their own past actions. I will let the National Security Advisor know your concerns, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Feinstein. 
Senator Udall, was that dramatic license? Or to your knowledge, did that conversation between Senator Feinstein and the president actually happen? I believe that conversation happened. The movie The Report is such a important piece of work that there's a real focus uh, on the part of all the people involved in making the movie and hewing to the truth. The Report, 6,700 pages. It is based on 6 million pages of records, emails, documents, interviews, 38,000 footnotes. Ultimately, a 500-page summary of the report was made public with some redactions to avoid releasing classified information. Did that satisfy you? It satisfied me at the time. I'm not satisfied today that the whole report hasn't been released. The whole report uh, would serve us well in reminding ourselves that never again should we undertake the use of torture. I think of a major congressional investigation back in the 1970s that found abuses by the intelligence community. I think in that case, it was less about torture than other issues, spying on civilians, assassination attempts on foreign leaders. You have said in this conversation, uh, this is not who we are. What if it is? Or what if it's an aspect of who we are? We're human. We have many emotions. One of the most powerful ones is fear. And if we don't have laws and if we don't have an ethos uh, that appeals to the higher qualities that we can call forth, then uh, we we can go down that dark road. That is the challenge we face, but it's also why I'm proud to be an American, because we have these conversations and we, we call ourselves out. Many, many other countries and societies can't or don't do that. I would say 99% of the intelligence community is patriotic, hardworking, and an important part of defending our country. And that, that was another reason I felt this was so important, because the enhanced interrogation program gave the entire intelligence community a bad name, when in fact, it was a few leaders and a few individuals. I want to make sure we support uh, our intelligence community. But if this kind of behavior and these actions are embraced, that's not acceptable. And in every way, it undercuts our intelligence community. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Former Colorado Senator Mark Udall was on the Senate Intelligence Committee when it issued a report about U.S. torture techniques after 9-11. A new movie, The Report, chronicles that period. By the way, we heard that scene with the committee's chairwoman, Senator Dianne Feinstein. Actress Annette Bening plays the role. She's been nominated for a Golden Globe. Pop culture has always loomed large in the lives of young adults. These days, though, it's their constant companion thanks to social media. They tell CPR's Haley Sanchez it's changing the way they think. When I asked students at the University of Colorado Boulder whether or not social media is good or bad, they said it's not that simple. Megan McDougal is in a women and gender studies class, and she says her eyes have been opened to a lot of political issues because of social media. The way that social media has taken off, like, within, like, our generation's timeline has, like, given a route for, like, social movements to take deeper roots because more people are seeing them happen. Victoria Carlson says she's into video games, TV shows, Snapchat, and more. 
it's hard to focus when all that is coming at her all the time. I limit myself to like certain things, like things that will stand out to me that I'll embrace and it go in depth because it's just too much. Like, you know, I'll look at my Snapchat feed and be like, I'm not going to try to get into that because that's just too much to absorb. Grace Ann Bowie is a freshman. She says she gets overwhelmed by all the information she's learning. She feels like, at times, she gets lost in all the ideas and the negativity. Our generation is just so opinionated about everything that it's just, like, hard to get away from it. And <laughs> remember, like, there are actually good people in the world, and the world is not completely, like, terrible because I feel like we honestly have a pretty cynical outlook on life. I meet Grace Williams in an anthropology class. She tells me she worries about what she's gaining from everything she's taking in. We're having kind of a crisis of identity almost because you're consuming so much media and so many people are portraying these kind of selves online and you're just taking them in all the time. Like for me, I will sit and watch YouTube for hours and then you kind of come out of it and you say, what, what about me? Like, what do I like to do? What are my interests as a person? And I think that that's a real downside of social media is that you can consume so much of what other people are doing that you don't really know who you are. But the students also tell me that TikTok and Twitter and memes and funny content has opened up new ways for them to have meaningful conversations. Here's Danny Urbina. When you laugh about something, it's easier to talk about it. So like me and my sisters, we all have like daddy issues, I guess. And so like we would never talk about like the trauma from my childhood, I guess. Except we might bring it up through like, like that meme you sent. Haha, ha, that was funny. That was like when dad did this, you know? And then we're like, yeah, actually that, that, that was really sad and that really hurt, you know? And then it starts that. <laughs> it's engraved in us. I, That's Grace and Bowie again. Like, sometimes I'm like crying and I legit like stop and I'm like, <laughs> like I'm not kidding. It's engraved in me. Like, I feel like we're all walking memes. Like I, we like, it's like a good thing and a bad thing. Like we can't separate ourselves from our sarcasm and our humor because it's like our greatest defense mechanism. They say although they probably could live without social media, they don't want to. They say they'll keep using humor to help them get through the chaos. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. And Haley's story is part of the project from CPR News called Teens Under Stress. Walking in downtown Denver during the holidays, you may notice something new in Riders Square, three red vending machines. Colorado Matters producer Natasha Watts checked them out. What would happen if you took the concept of a vending machine and flipped it on its head? Instead of receiving something after you put your money in, you donate it. That's the idea behind the giving machines, public vending machines that donate your purchases to charity. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints piloted the idea in Salt Lake City in 2017. This winter, giving machines have been installed in 10 cities, including London, Manila, and Denver. I was a guest of the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in uh, Salt Lake City. And uh, while I was there, I was walking through a building and saw the machines. It was a converted vending machine. Uh, and instead of buying candy bars, you're buying vital services for someone in need. That's Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. He saw the enthusiasm in Salt Lake City and decided he wanted the giving machines here. When I came back later in the afternoon, the line was wrapped around the, the building. And I saw that it was easy to give. And then you can give according to what you're able to give. I mean, you didn't feel pressured. And the, the reality is that the gifts start as low as $3.50 and go as high as $300. And so uh, you can do based on your ability to give and, and you can do it, you know, discreetly and, and do it, you know, according to your heart and your ability. 
I had to see for myself how these machines worked, so I ventured to Ryder Square after their official unveiling. Eager volunteers waited nearby to help people with the process of purchasing. Hi, I'm Amy Johnson, and I'm on the communications committee for Light the World Giving Machines. All right, and Amy's going to help me walk through this line and make a donation at the Giving Machines. I think we can go right here. Okay, so I'm walking up to this giant red machine, and I don't know what to do. Well, if you choose the item you want to donate. Okay, I'm looking at some of the options. There's a tiger worm toilet, which helps with sewage problems. I can buy one sheep. It helps the family because the wool from the sheep helps with their income. I can buy school supplies from Mile High Ministries or for Mile High Ministries. Oh, man, so many good options. There's a steam kit for four kids, includes lab coat, goggles, and three science experiments. And that's for the Black Child Development Institute. Yeah, let's do that one. Okay, Okay. so you choose, you punch in the number, one, two, four. And now slide your card. There you go. Oh, yeah, and so there's this little block that came down, and now it's sitting in a glass box with all the other ones that have been donated. Sean Johnson was there. She's senior advisor for Mayor Hancock and played a lead role in getting the giving machines to Denver. Denver's a very, very giving city, and Colorado's a giving state. And when people know how to give or where to give, and we point them in the right direction, then they're really grateful. They're like, I've been looking for a way to show my children, to show my family, to make Christmas meaningful and purposeful, and not always receiving, but how can we give to others? Many people who came by are members of the LDS Church who knew about the machines and wanted to visit and make their donation. One was Rachel, who bought the same steam kit that I chose. I'm in engineering, and I love to see kids like learn through experiments. There's so much room for kids in science and STEM, and I like to encourage them. The Red Machines also drew in curious pedestrians who knew nothing about the project, including Micah. I feel like it makes it more personal. You can see where your money is going towards, and it makes it more attainable. Like, you can realize, oh, it only costs $12 to help somebody. Oh, it only costs $3. Like, that's money that you spend. People spend more at Starbucks around the corner than they do giving, so it makes it really accessible. I spoke with lots of people involved with the giving machines, and they all shared similar sentiments, that by getting people out of their routines, they hope to make this holiday season a true season of giving. Producer Natasha Watts, who checked out the giving machines recently installed in Denver. One of the organizations that benefits is Water for People. It's a Colorado nonprofit, works to provide clean water around the world, but it also focuses on jobs and equality for women. We'll take a closer look later in the show. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the fight to save minor league baseball. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. 
Cities across the U.S. could lose their minor league baseball teams, more than 40 of them, including Grand Junction and Colorado Springs. For some, this plan is a big swing and a miss. In the Springs, it's the Rocky Mountain vibes that could be eliminated. Chris Phillips is the team's president and general manager. He's on the line from baseball's winter meetings in San Diego. And Chris, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. There are about 160 minor league teams nationwide. MLB's plan is to drop 42 for the 2021 season. But you say that in many ways, the upcoming season's already been ruined by this news. How so? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely been a, uh, a challenge and a distraction as we move forward with, uh, with our planning for, for next season, which we've got a lot of amazing things in the works. We're hosting the All-Star Game for the, for the Pioneer and uh, Northwest Leagues. Uh, we were selected to be part of minor league baseball's uh, Copa de la Diversión uh, campaign this year, uh, which which is a whole other story. But you know, as we're as we're planning and and working on uh, all of our themes and promotions for the year, uh, to have this news come out uh, obviously has has uh, been a, a pretty it has, has a pretty major impact on on our, our you know our day to day operations. The Pioneer League you mentioned, which you're a part of, you say it's a distraction. Is it a distraction for the players as well? I'm sure it is. I mean, uh, you know, this is uh, this is, this proposal would be eliminating you know thousands of jobs of uh, not only you know the full time front office staff for for the teams that would be involved, all of the the game day seasonal uh, jobs that these teams provide in their communities, and then the players themselves. I mean, uh, uh, you know, eliminating these teams is uh, is going to be taking away all of those players' jobs as well. The other event that you uh, mentioned that you're planning is uh, around Hispanic heritage in baseball. Okay, so contract negotiations between major and minor league baseball are going on. And part of the controversy is that potential negotiating points like eliminating teams were made public. There was a session Friday there in San Diego with a very purposeful lack of news coming out afterwards. Mm-hmm. Can can you tell us what happened, or is there an agreement to keep things mum? Um, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I think uh, the fact that you know, typically these negotiations are done kind of at the high level behind closed doors, and um, you know, while uh, when that news was leaked, um, a, you know, probably about three weeks ago at this point. Um, obviously, we're everybody across the country was was extremely upset about it. Um, but now, you know, seeing that there has been this this strong public outcry against this proposal, you know, gives gives us hope and and uh, and faith that you know, let's let's turn these negotiations into positive talks and figure out a way to uh, to negotiate, but not in a, in a manner that's going to eliminate 42 teams across the country. I mean, I think there are other ways to solve uh, to solve whatever issues uh, Major League Baseball has with, uh, you know, they mentioned facility standards, they mentioned player pay. There are other ways to solve those issues. Right. We'll dive into the specifics in a bit, but it doesn't sound like there's any resolution here. The conversations continue. You talked about how this is making waves as far away as Washington, D.C., which we'll also talk about. I want to say that the Vibes are an affiliate of the Major League Milwaukee Brewers, again, playing in the Pioneer League. 2019 uh, was the team's first season, and by all indications, it was a success. Attendance was higher than in the team's previous iteration, and you say the financial impact in Colorado Springs was almost $4 million. Are yeah, you... it's, more, it's, it's more than that. I mean, it, it's, uh, <clears throat> I know we looked at those numbers again. I mean, in terms of actual cash dollars that we're paying for 
you know, everything from, like I mentioned, uh, the, you know, the game day seasonal salaries of, of people that are there, uh, the contracts that we have with our, uh, you know, emergency medical suppliers, our security, our, uh, you know, everybody that we employ and the, and the cash that we put back into the community is, is, is about that $4 million. But when you look at an overall economic impact, I mean, it's closer to $20 million. And it uh, and that's that's for our city, right? And then you multiply that times forty, you know, forty one, forty two other cities across the country. Um, it's a it's a it would be a tragedy if something like this were to happen. It would be ripping, you know, baseball, professional baseball, out of these cities, uh, making access for anybody that wants to see, you know, a professional baseball game. Um, nearly, you know, impossible. You know, having to travel now hundreds or thousands of miles, spend a lot of money to go see a game. It's. Uh, I, I don't see how it's good for the sport. Um, and you know, we're 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 gonna we're gonna fight this. I mean, we're doing everything we can to uh, to revisit these negotiations. Whether that gets that's talking about getting uh, political uh, involvement, um, which which has already happened and yeah. continue to happen. And, so that's that's where we're at right now. I just want to say, unfortunately, no resolution as of as of uh, you know the first few days in the winter meetings here. When this proposal was presented, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred said the idea was twofold: to raise the salaries of minor league players, mm-hmm. and you referenced this earlier, to make teams with shoddy facilities step up to the plate and improve conditions for players. Uh, in an interview with the Denver Post this weekend, Colorado Rockies owner Dick Montfort said he was in favor of restructuring. He added that under the current agreement, there's too much movement of teams and affiliates, which causes great inconvenience for the major leagues. Uh, would you reflect just a bit on the arguments for this shrinking? Yeah, I mean, I, I would vehemently disagree. I mean, I, I think you know this is a this has been a uh, uh, the way that things are set up. It's it's worked. It's been working for a hundred years, um, and I, you know, I said my, minor league talk, salaries are very low, famously they are, low. They're below you, minimum you know wage. How is that working? So, you know, who pays the minor league salaries? The major league teams. So we minor league teams do not pay the player salaries. So if, if the major league teams want to increase the salary for their players, they have every right and ability to do so. Um, but that's not an argument for why, why this needs to happen. I mean, if, if um, you know, you're, you're in this new proposal, you're essentially cutting out now thousands of minor league jobs, minor league, minor league player jobs. Yeah. But if you shrink the number of players, the remaining ones would presumably get more money. Presumably, but I mean, they have the they have the ability to do that now. They have the ability to to pay these players more if they'd like to. You th- you think Major League Baseball has deep pockets, and they're not being generous here when it comes to the minor league players? Uh, yeah, I, uh, yes, I would I would I would say that I would agree with that statement. I, it's whether it's whether or not you want to call it generous, um, it's their decision to pay these players what they're paying them. Minor League Baseball uh, does seem to have friends in high places. When this contraction plan was announced, more than 100 members of Congress sent a letter to Commissioner Manford, including Republicans Doug Lamborn and Scott Tipton here in Colorado. Last week, Democratic Senator and presidential candidate Michael Bennett also wrote a letter in support. So, by the way, did Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Major League Baseball enjoys an antitrust exemption from Congress, which gives it a great deal of leeway in operating its business. We asked Congressman Tipton if that exemption might be in danger because of this dispute. 
should it ultimately come to that, I think it's something Congress might look at. My first choice would be to just be able to work with Major League Baseball, the commissioner, uh, to be able to point out the benefits of really having these minor league teams. Okay, so it sounds like that would be the nuclear option. But sure. uh, what else might be on the table for minor league teams like the Vibes? I mean, might teams boycott en masse? I don't know that that would, that would help. Um, I think, uh, yeah, first of all, I'd like to thank Congressman Lamborn and, and and Tipton and, uh, and Senator Bennett for, for their support in this. And, and then it's going to take that type of support across the country with, uh, with congressmen and senators and governors and mayors in all of these cities. And, um, you know, whether or not the antitrust, you know, comes into effect, I think there are ways to negotiate these, uh, these discussions and come to a resolution that doesn't involve eliminating 42 teams across the country. Uh, but it's going to be, uh, you know, I have a feeling it's going to be a long, lengthy, political, legal battle. Ugly? Sure. Sure. <laughs> Chris, I appreciate your time. Thanks for taking the time out of those meetings in San Diego. Yeah, I, I appreciate you having me on. And, um, you know, we encourage everyone to, uh, to, to stay informed and, and vocalize your support to, uh, to prevent this from happening. If that's how you feel, Chris Phillips, president and general manager of the Rocky Mountain Vibes, the Vibes and another Colorado minor league team, the Grand Junction Rockies, could be eliminated in 2021 under a plan Major League Baseball is floating. Earlier, we told you about new giving machines in downtown Denver. Instead of paying for a candy bar or a can of soda, you choose a charity to donate to. One of the nonprofits that benefits is Water for People, based in Denver. It works to provide clean water to communities around the world. But water winds up being a starting point. CEO Eleanor Allen spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. In 2016, you presented at the Denver TEDx event. Let's hear the beginning of that talk. I'd like to tell you a story about Maria. I met Maria when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Dominican Republic. I lived with her grandparents. She was three years old, used to come and visit on the weekends, smiley, pudgy, fun. She'd run up to me and hug my knees when she saw me. We spent a lot of time together. We played silly games like hide and seek, chase the chickens, and her favorite game, was imitate la gringa. (laughs) One Sunday, Maria came, we played, and she teased me as usual. And that Thursday, she died. Of diarrhea, from drinking dirty water. Tell us about Maria and why you chose to begin with that story. I began with the story of Maria because Maria affected my life in many ways. First, I'd never actually been with anyone that had died, except my grandmother, who we expected to die. But I'd never been close to death, and especially of a child. So I was really traumatized by her death, and she was someone I loved and I'd spent a lot of time with. And then the second reason was just knowing how she died, and knowing it was from dirty water and it could have been prevented. And it just, it was so horrible, and then it just really affected me and made me want to do something about it. Obviously, humans need clean water to live. Tell me about the intricacies of that. Why is water, particularly clean water, essential to helping communities? 
Oh, so many ways that water helps communities. First, it's a foundation of life. None of us can live without water. And there's so many things that can be in water that are harmful to us, many of which you can't see. So parasites, bacteria, all kinds of waterborne disease can live in water. And many people don't know this because you can't see it. And they don't believe water gets them sick. So even just a knowledge gap can be really difficult in communities. Water for People, you're providing clean water to communities around the globe who don't have it. What have you learned over the years about how to do that sustainably? First, it's very hard. It's easy to build infrastructure and put a pump on a pipe and and dig a well. But it's hard to keep first get the water clean. That requires chemistry and sometimes biology and treatment. And then second, to make sure people operate and maintain that infrastructure to keep things going. And so when you take the technology solution, that's easy. But when you combine it with changing habits and people and training and customs and and, um, traditions, that makes it really hard. And I imagine education has to be part of it because if somebody doesn't believe that water is getting them sick, I imagine it can be hard to convince somebody to use new infrastructure or to take extra precautions that are tedious. Extremely hard. Yeah, so education is a huge part of it. Education on health and hygiene and why that's important, but also on valuing water and valuing your time. So a lot of the places where we work, they're agricultural communities, very rural, and people walk for water to the, the stream or the creek or the well or the um, or the artesian spring that's coming out of the ground. And that's just part of the life they've always had, and they might spend hours doing that, but they don't know they could take that time and use it for working or some other beneficial use. And so that's a whole other kind of uh, education process about what else people could do with their time and the value of time. So it's not just about even health. It's also about economic opportunity or just the opportunity that time provides. Yes. And you call this tactic of providing sustainable infrastructure and infrastructure with education or the ability to maintain it. Everyone forever, meaning that everyone has safe water that lasts forever. Have you seen evidence that this approach really works? Yes, we have. And it's especially um, true in these last couple of years. But I'll step back a bit to what we learned from all our mistakes and how we've gotten better over time. So in 1991, we uh, Water for People's founded, and we were a traditional nonprofit. And this still happens around the world today. We took a bunch of people from North America, would drill wells and build infrastructure, take pictures and go home. And pretty much all that infrastructure failed, and people weren't educated. They didn't know how to maintain those systems. They didn't have any money to maintain those systems. So it was kind of, they were consumable goods, but they were very expensive consumables. And then people went back to the creek and kept getting sick. So over time, we saw that we were really not helping the world. So fast forward from 1991 to about um, 2010, we just changed our entire model. So we said, we know what we're doing is not helping. We're going to change what we do because we know well, we believe we know how we can do this. And it's really similar to how we do things in, in the U.S., but, of course, no one thinks about it here because you just turn your faucet on and you have water, and you, especially here in Denver, Denver water's safe to drink and it's highly regulated and water's treated and it's a um, very nice way of living. And so that's the vision we want for everyone in the world. But to do that, we would take on a whole geography, like a county size. We call it a district, but it's a large, whatever the existing geopolitical boundary is where people live. 
We do a survey who has some sort of water service, who goes to the creek, and who had something one time from someone well-intended, but that infrastructure is broken. And then we figure out what needs to be built, how much it costs. And then at the same time we start building the infrastructure, we're also educating people about why safe water is important. And then working directly with the municipal government about why it's, uh, they should create a authority to take on the responsibility of providing safe water. So basically little mini Denver waters. You create the uh, small utility, we call it a service authority. We train the operators, maintenance workers, managers. We set a water rate like based on the cost of serving the people in the system. And that's also money that they have for spare parts and treatment, et cetera. So these are jobs as well. A lot of job creation, which, of course, I love. I've been a water professional my whole life. Before I worked in nonprofit, I worked in engineering consulting and did big water systems around the world, like Denver Water Urban. So I love the idea that we're creating a whole new generation of water professionals around the world, which is super inspiring to me. You titled that 2016 TEDx talk, Water is a Women's Issue. Tell me what you meant by that. Yes, that's something I um, am very passionate about. Women are disproportionately affected by the global water crisis in several different ways. First, they are often the ones fetching water, if it's women or the girls, sometimes the boys, but more often it's that the, that's like a women's job. If you think about time and the time spent that women and girls fetch water, it's about 200 million hours a day. Well, that's a big number. What does that actually mean? So if you break it down to something that's meaningful that we can relate to, that's the time equivalent to 35,000 girls earning a four-year college degree every day. So 35,000 girls earning a four-year college degree every day, that's a huge input to the workforce if we can switch that time from fetching water to education. Also, when you think about girls in school, two-thirds of the schools in the low- and middle-income countries don't have toilets. So girls uh, will go to school if they're not fetching water, but they'll usually or often drop out in middle school. If there's no toilet, you get your period. Like, I'm not going to school this week. Or they'll miss a whole week of school. Or they'll just stop going. So getting toilets into schools keeps girls in school, which is a big deal. I mean, education is really a, um, a way out of poverty for billions of people. And then without having toilets, there's an issue with safety and dignity and, and women get raped and girls get raped. So all these things disproportionately affect women and girls. And that's something that I um, really am passionate about because I know we can change it. And like you've said, water for people, it's about more than drinking water. You're building tiger worm toilets. <laughs> it's actually one of the items that people can fund through giving machines. How do tiger worms help with sanitation? Oh, now you're hitting on one of my uh, other favorite things besides women and water is uh, sanitation. So my background doing urban systems was more wastewater plants than water plants. So tiger worms um, are similar. Let's first talk about vermicomposting. This is something that's more common in the U.S. Um, I actually have a worm bin at my house. I don't know if you do, but worm bins are a way of composting. Worms, I mean, if they're in your yard, they're composting all the time with green waste. So they just take organic waste and break it down. And they take in the nutrients, and they create a very um, rich fertilizer. So a tiger worm toilet is a composting toilet. It's a composting toilet, but it has active, you know, colony of happy worms in there. Now, worms don't live forever. Is this in danger of being just a short-term solution? Worms love to reproduce. 
worms will double their weight in three months. So they keep their colony going as long as you feed them. And if you keep pooping, you keep feeding and they continue to reproduce. So not only that, but often tiger worm toilets can be like my worm bin. I have to harvest my worms every now and then and people can sell the worms. They're actually quite valuable in in the countries where I work and and low and middle income uh, countries. People, uh, there are worm farmers that sell to green waste composting, but also now to tiger toilets. And it's uh, it's a revenue generator as well. And tell me about why it's important to have a composting toilet. What danger is there in a community that doesn't have sanitary toilets? Let's compare to how we live in the U.S. So you go to the bathroom, you flush. Most people don't know where it goes. I know where it goes because it goes to treatment plants and I've designed a lot of them, but we don't even think about it. So we have the luxury of having sewer systems. Um, That's about a third of the world that's sewered two-thirds of the world, not sewered. So if you're not on a sewer system, you're on a septic tank like rural America, or you're in an outhouse, what we call a pit latrine, or in some sort of in-between that could be a composting toilet or, um, but let's just go with the composting toilet because they're, they're quite different models of composting toilets around the world. So tiger toilets is one. You can have a composting toilet with two bins like you'd have your compost pile in the backyard. You keep one active all the others composting and then you remove the compost and you switch over. But the nice thing about composting toilets in general, whether tiger toilets or any toilets, is you don't have to uh, go dig a new hole. So if you have a pit latrine and your hole fills up, you either got to dig a new one if you have space or you have to call someone to empty your pit, like you would call to have your septic tank emptied when it fills with solids. The liquids leach out, but the solids stay. Um, In peri-urban slums and, and areas where houses are near each other, you can't go dig another hole. So it's expensive to get someone to empty your pit. But if you have the uh, composting toilet, it kind of extends the life of your pit for a long time. And you can kind of self-empty it because you harvest the compost out of it. And that's why it's sustainable over the long haul. It strikes me that so many pieces of this water system, people in developed countries maybe just take for granted. Absolutely. I wonder if you could leave us with one more thing that people in the United States take for granted that you have to think through when you're working in other countries for water for people. Well, I would say get to know your water. Know where your water comes from and cherish the watershed. We're in a water-scarce state, but we don't really live that way most of the time. But as more and more people come to Denver, I mean, we're going to have to become more uh, water-wise and self-aware of where our water comes from and more conservation and water, um, reduce how much water we each use because there's only a finite supply of water. Cherish your watershed. I love that. Mm -hmm. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Avery. Conversations like that always make me think of my long shower in the morning. It's too long. That's Eleanor Allen. She leads Water for People, a global charity based in Denver, speaking with my colleague Avery Lill. The nonprofit provides clean water and sanitation. What is Colorado's iconic dish? Last week, a listener asked that question through Colorado Wonders. That is, do we have the equivalent of the Philly cheesesteak or Chicago-style pizza? Well, we started with eight contenders, and at more than 800 votes counted, we're down to four choices for the next round. CPR digital editor Jim Hill updates this food fight. Sam's number 3 diner started in downtown Denver back in the 1920s. If you look at the menu today, green chili appears almost 40 times, so they seem to know what they're doing. Give you an example of how much chili we sell. We sell 60 gallons of green chili a day. So that's probably like, I wrote it down here, 
22,000 gallons of green chili a year. That's Alex Armitas, the grandson of Sam's founder, Sam Armitas. Now stop to think about all the other restaurants that serve a mean bowl of the green stuff. I know, right? It isn't a surprise then that in the first round of the Colorado Wonders iconic state food bracket, green chili walked away with it. Fast casual dining didn't even have a chance. Governor Jared Polis, a, a known green chili connoisseur, even got behind it. That love of green chili also propelled the Pueblo Slopper, a hamburger drowned in the sauce, ahead of the plain old cheeseburger, which at least does have some Denver roots. At Gray's Coors Tavern in Pueblo, owner Dean Gray says the slopper is the most popular item on the menu. I would say at least 70% of the uh, things made in the kitchen are green chili sloppers, probably. But trust me, not every vote went to green chili. The humble Denver omelet, a breakfast staple of onions, peppers, ham, and cheddar, easily bested the Mexican hamburger, even though it's the one food historians agree was definitely invented here. And yes, the Mexican hamburger is tucked into a tortilla and usually smothered in green chili. Then there was the upset. Rocky Mountain Oysters went head-to-head with microbrewed beer and lost, but just barely. It seems even a classic of the American West can't stand up to Colorado's legendary love of craft beer. So now we're down to our final four, green chili versus the Denver omelet, and microbrew versus the Pueblo Slopper. Which cuisine will reign supreme? You tell us. Voting in the second round closes December 13th. Go to CPR.org to cast a vote. I'm Jim Hill, CPR News. We've eaten through our time. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.